You are listening to a sermon from Gateway Foursquare Church in Campbell River, BC. We are so glad that you joined us today and trust that the Lord will speak a word directly to you as you listen. To learn more about Gateway, find out what's happening, or to give a gift online, check us out at www.gatewayfoursquare.ca. You are welcome to join us in person each week at 9 and 11 a.m. Now get ready. Here is this week's message. Today we're going to be discussing a bit of a difficult or a bit of an interesting topic. We're going to be talking about, is it up there already? In a moment it will be. We're going to be talking about money. Can you all say, dun, dun, dun. I know, I know. Everyone has a different feeling when they learn that their church is going to be discussing the subject of money. I remember growing up, actually, I remember someone saying to, actually, I remember a few people saying this to my pastor growing up. They said, we love our church, just don't talk about money. (laughs) And this became like apparent to me that like, okay, maybe church is not the best place to talk about money. But um, I learned later on that's not really the case. Uh, and I'm so thankful to be a part of a church where, where I, don't, I don't see that to be the case. Where no one's mentioned to me not to preach about anything or even to preach about anything. In fact, last week, I, I kind of touched on a particular subject that was a bit contentious. Uh, we talked about sexual sin. And as we were walking through our regular series of Roman, which, by the way, we will get back to. Um, anyways... After the service, I was just encouraged and encouraged and encouraged. And then through Monday, through Tuesday, through Wednesday, church, I think like 30 of you took the time specifically to encourage me. And so I want to say thank you. I think that it's good that we'd be willing to have some difficult discussions. Um, And so money is one of those difficult discussions. So I wanted to kind of thank you for being brave with me this morning. All right. The reality is I could avoid the subject of money but Jesus did not. Have you noticed that before? Right? And, and now some pastors and teachers, you probably noticed over the years, have maybe made a bigger deal of money than, than maybe even Jesus did. And I don't think that that's a good idea either. Perhaps you've heard that 11 out of 39 parables use money. I remember hearing that kind of periodically over time. And I thought, wow, 11 out of 39, that's quite a bit. But even this is a bit of an exaggeration, as it's funny that 11 out of 39 parables use money, but aren't necessarily about money. Uh, However, it is kind of noteworthy that there are 37 occasions where Jesus addresses the subject of money, and he addresses it quite clearly. And I think if Jesus talks about something 37 times, I think that we should pay attention. What do you think? All right. So can you imagine, by the way, if Jesus didn't talk about money at all? Right, or if the Bible had nothing in it to do with money in the slightest, right? And Jesus was like, yeah, there's this divide between, you know, like spiritual and material. And everything spiritual in your life, you can kind of align under me, right? But everything material, all of your possessions, you can just do what you want, right? Can you imagine if that was the case, right? It'd be like a little bit of a gong show, right? And, and, and Jesus doesn't, though, right? He, he, 37 times he, he speaks about money. By the way, that's more times than he speaks about forgiveness. That's, that's more times than he speaks about healing. That's more times than he speaks about repentance. That's more times that he speaks about being saved, right? And it's not to say that the way that we handle our money is anything in comparison to these particular subjects, right, and the impact that they have for our faith, but it is worth paying attention, There's a particular verse that comes to mind for me, and we'll walk through some passages of Scripture, but I wanted to highlight this verse first in a sense to kind of set the table. This this verse is actually from Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. 
says, no one can serve two masters. Actually, church, could you read this with me? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You cannot serve two masters. You simply cannot. For many of us, this strikes us right in the heart. You see, Jesus had to address the issue of money. Why? It's because of the way that God made us. It's the way that God designed kind of our, 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 our sort of society even, that, that we would require an economic, kind of an economical structure to be in place where we can exchange goods and services. Jesus was aware of the need for such a structure and he's aware of the need for us to have money, but he knew, get this, and he communicated to us that money cannot become the main thing, right? Money cannot become the main thing, which for much of our society, I don't know if you've noticed, but I've noticed money has become the main thing. Maybe even for many of us in the room, money at some point in our life or maybe even presently has become the main thing. It's a bit addicting. It's something that we like to worry about a lot. And if it's not become the main thing, it's certainly way up there on our list of priorities. And it can sort of dominate a lot of conversations and it can dominate our lives as every decision that we make sort of goes through this lens of money. And I'm not saying that we should disregard money at all. In fact, this sermon will kind of outline the opposite, right? But it is something worth noting that money can become the main thing. And Jesus says it should not become the main thing. He gives us a different way, a way for us to follow God, using money, seeing its potential, trusting God with it, and following the word of God in how we handle our resources. So today's like ser- or kind of series title, we'll address money in the coming weeks and months here just a little, a little bit. I think we'll do like a, three, a three-part series on money. We we titled it Money Matters, but if I were to title this particular message, I would title it Jesus Loves Christians Who Don't Tithe. (laughs) Now, some of you are maybe like, "Uh uh-oh, I think my phone's ringing. I think think it's time to go, right? (laughs) I didn't sign up for this, right? (laughs) Um, I, I just wanted to kind of say something important before we get into it this morning. It's very possible that if we have a discussion around money, that that might immediately cause some anxiety for some of you, right? It would be normal for some of us to have a little bit of an elevated heartbeat as money becomes a discussion in church, right? Perhaps some of you over the years have maybe received what you can identify as now, maybe poor teaching, right? Teaching that would suggest that if you don't tithe that your salvation is in question. Nothing could be further from the truth. Your salvation from what Jesus did on the cross does not hinge upon your tithing in the slightest. Additionally, money might be tight for you. It might be tight for some of your family. It might be tight for some of your friends. And when money is tight or maybe you're in a season where it's difficult, maybe you're spending more than you're making, it can be, it can be stressful. Let me just say this. The point of today's sermon series is not to get more out of you and to get more into an offering plate. That is not the point of this series at all. The main point of this series is not to guilt or to shame or to make any of you feel any sort of way. The point of this sermon series is to look to the word of God and to allow it to instruct us on a very important subject that we're all touched by. So would you join me 
Would you be brave with me? Really, would you be brave with me as we look to the word of God? All right, all right. Can you open your Bibles to Luke chapter 11? We're going to be kind of walking through verses 37 to 42. And then if you've got two of those fancy, like, what are the threads in your Bible? We're also going to be going to uh, 1 Corinthians 15 and 16 thereafter. But first, we're in Luke chapter 11, 37 to 42. Before we read, though, let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me? Dear Heavenly Father, as we take a moment here to discuss an important topic that we see clearly matters to you, God, I pray that there be kind of an unlocking of our hearts. God, that this could be an opportunity for us to be instructed by your word. God, we ask that you'd speak into our lives encouragement, forgiveness, comfort, but also, God, that we could be convicted by your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right. So Luke chapter 11, 37 to 42, it starts off, Jesus here is with the Pharisee. It says, when Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. We're gonna pause for a quick moment there. What is a Pharisee? Or maybe I should say, who is a Pharisee? See, the Pharisees were a religious sect of leaders in that day and age. And, and their practice was to hold to the law so religiously so, with such importance that they'd often embellish the law onto, or pardon me, and they'd add on to existing laws so that they might be as close to perfect as possible in their faith. They loved following the law because they had this sort of foundational idea that if you can live your faith as perfectly as possible, their idea was that Yahweh might return and rescue them. They thought that they needed to improve in their perfection of following the law. And so they positioned themselves as experts, experts of the law who were perceived as better than others because of their strict following of the law. Now, Jesus interacts with the Pharisees on many instances throughout the, throughout the Gospels. But this particular interaction kind of stands out to me because of what Jesus did. It says, he went in and he reclined at the table. I kind of imagine myself in the room when I read this passage, and so I'd, I'd invite you to do so too. It says here, the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal, one of their rules, one of their laws. Then the Lord said to him, now then, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You'll say, ouch, ouch. You foolish people, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now, as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor and everything will be clean for you. Woe to you, Pharisees. Can you say that with me? Woe to you, Pharisees. Because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs. But you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. So in this passage of scripture here, we see Jesus give six woes uh, to, the, to, to the Pharisee, right? And, and, and the, the word woe here uh, is kind of, it would be translated as watch out. Can you all say watch out? Right, but it wasn't like a, a watch out, like, you know, an emergency watch out. It was a watch out, like a grief-led watch out. He's saying like, would you watch out? Would you be careful? 
And so we're gonna zoom in on the first of those woes for our message today. By the way, imagine if your dinner guest was speaking to you in this way. Would you feel comfortable? <laughs> Jesus, Jesus noticed what they were doing wrong. And he says, you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. And so he's pointing out something. He's like, hey guys, I, I see what you're doing. I see that you've picked up on our sort of Jewish historical basis for a tithe, but you've needlessly added on to it so unnecessarily, so much so that if you have like a little garden box with plants that you are to tithe off of the growth of that little garden and then the Messiah might come. And if you don't, then he might not. And if you've got a little bit of mint, you better tithe on that. And Jesus is like, come on guys. I mean, congratulations. You're, you're tithing on the smallest things in the world, but you're missing out on the big point of God's justice and love. How many of you this morning think that we should be focused on the big point, right? God's justice and love. I wanna point out this morning that, that Jesus did not call into question the historical work of God's people giving regularly in the way known as tithes. He didn't call that into question at all. You see, historically, the word tithe comes from a number of passages in the Old Testament, uh, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Malachi, and many more. But, but essentially, it was, it was kind of like an agricultural age back then. And, and so they would have been in the habit uh, of giving of their agriculture, not necessarily of their money. They didn't have money in the same structure as was kind of taking place here in the Gospels or even in our day and age where we're quite money-focused, right? And so they would give the first and the best of their crops or their animals, right? And they'd give the first and the best and they operated by the rule of the 10th. So that's kind of like the three guidelines, first, the best, and the 10th, right? And they would give these to God. And as other resources came into their lives, the principle of the first and the best and the 10th continued to carry on. And they did this, they gave with a heart of worship and an expression of trust in God. It was, in a way, regularly detaching themselves from their first and their best. And Jesus kind of extends this instruction as he warns that you cannot serve two masters. Remember Matthew chapter 6, 24? You cannot serve two masters. You will end up living with clenched hands, holding on to your possessions, holding on to your resources, and it will inevitably steer you away. So what Jesus says in that moment in Matthew 6 considers the history of Old Testament giving. But Jesus here is a pivot point bringing us into new covenant giving. Perhaps you've heard of the old covenant and then the kind of new covenant. And there's a pivot point that takes place in the life of Jesus and that also affects the way that we give. And so some might ask, what is new covenant giving like? If the old covenant was that they gave the first and the best and the tenth, what does new covenant giving look like? And so I would invite you, if you've wondered this question before, or perhaps you're wondering it right now, to read the New Testament. The New Testament is, is not an intimidating read. It might seem like a lot when you look at it and there's 27 books, right? You'd be like, oh my goodness, 27 books. I haven't read 27 books in five years. But the, some of these books are, are quite short, right? They're, they're written as letters. And if you were to read through the New Testament, it's about a 16-hour read, which means that if you read for two hours a day, you could be done in a week. An hour a day, you'd be done in two weeks. A half hour a day, you'd be done in a month. It's very doable. But I must warn you, 
As you read through the New Testament with the lens of looking for information on what new covenant giving looks like, you may not like what you find. See, the book of Acts, the fifth book of the New Testament, discusses the development and the work of the church after Jesus ascended. And, and in that book, alongside many others, you'll see that, it's, that an, an act of giving is demonstrated that looks a whole lot more than 10%. You'll see what is described and depicted as giving of all that you have. New covenant giving looks a whole lot like giving all of what's being given or what's being provided to you. It's kind of scary. Read through it for yourself. They were, they were giving as much as they could to the work of God. The early church was all in on the work of God. And so all of a sudden, 10% doesn't sound so bad, does it? 10%, that's a bargain, right? I want to switch gears here for a moment. We're going to head to our main passage of study. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15 and 16. 15, verse 58, into chapter 16, all the way to verse 4. You see, the original scriptures didn't really have chapters and verses, right? Those were added afterwards, maybe by like a numbers person, maybe someone who is really, really organized. Who here, by the way, is like just an organized person? They like being, yeah, okay, yeah. I'm not going to ask you to do anything. Keep your hands up. Who are you, organized people? <laughs> no, the reason I'm asking you to hold up your hands is because you're my people. <laughs> you're my friends. <laughs> the rest of you I'm worried about. <laughs> All joking aside, when you're reading the word of God, it can be like common practice to stop at the end of a chapter, right? Like a regular book. But the Bible is not a regular book at all, right? And often the thought continues in the next chapter. And so if you're in the habit of reading through your Bible, maybe just maybe you can kind of flip into the next chapter to see if what you were reading is still continued into the next chapter. Because that kind of takes place here between chapter 15 and 16. So chapter 15 is this remarkable chapter, I'd encourage you to read it later, that's all about the resurrection and the gospel. And then it leads into this practical instruction around new covenant giving. Let's read. It says, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Say those words with me. Stand firm. It says, let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Now about the collection for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to those you approve and then send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. So this is Paul speaking, and he's giving some instructions around giving unto the mission of the Lord. By the way, just, to, just to, on the last few details, I think that it is beautiful to see that right away in the early church practices of church leadership, there's already oversight and accountability in their giving. Who else thinks that that's beautiful? Money is handled seriously. There, there's a plan in place. No one person is responsible. No one person is making all of the decisions financially. There's a team that's set in place, a system set in place. And as like a numbers kind of person, someone who loves finance, and I find this to be quite interesting, I think that this is beautiful. Now, for those of you who are new to our Gateway family, I want to say that I am grateful for the work of our whole leadership council. 
I'm grateful for our bookkeeper, Kelly Purden. I'm grateful for the work of, of our secretary, Stephanie Sullivan. Accountability and oversight matter to us. All of our financial information is submitted to the Foursquare denomination that we're a part of because we care about accountability and we care about oversight of our resources. Now, I want to point back to the text here. The text that we just read, I believe, offers us four very important thoughts that I want to take a closer look at today. Uh, four important thoughts that kind of give us an understanding of what new covenant giving looks like. Remember, this is Paul speaking. The first of which is new covenant giving is for everyone. Paul says, each one of you. Can you say those words with me? Each one of you. You ever like maybe had like a shirt or a sweater, garment of sorts, and a thread started to come out from that garment, right? It's pretty annoying. Some of you are like wincing. You're like, oh, I hate that, right? And then you need to like cut it off, or if you're a crazy person, you just pull it like <laughs> continually, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? You, you, if you're if you're like a normal person, you'd you'd cut it off gently, right? You maybe like with some like little like nail clippers or something. You don't want it to pull out any further because you like your shirt. Right? And so you, you cut it out, and you'd notice that that strand isn't really strong. Right? On its own, you could probably break it between your hands. Right? And, and, and what's interesting, though, is that when you combine the individual threads, right, that it makes it a stronger piece. Right? That our garments aren't just one strand, but they're put together with many. Right? Or perhaps the construction of a rope, as it's this combination of threads until they're put together as a rope and it makes them stronger together. So one of the very first questions they had to ask themselves is, am I doing my part? Is my family doing our part? And, and the second thing uh, that, that, that Paul says about new, new covenant giving is this. He says, it's consistent. New covenant giving is consistent. The language Paul uses here is on the first day of every week. Now, a sub-point to this could be that it's deeply attached to worship. Because what is the first day of the week? Sunday, right? And Sunday was their day of worship like it is our day of worship. And, and Paul makes this connection to suggest that when you give, it is deeply attached to your worship. This is what scripture says. It's not just inspired and spontaneous, Right? And there's nothing wrong with inspired and spontaneous giving. In fact, church, I would charge you to make room in your life, if you can make room, to be able to kind of make margin for giving spontaneously. So that when you see a need, maybe when God nudges your heart, that you could be able to give to someone or a group of people or a mission of sorts where, where you're in need. Spontaneous giving is really important. I would encourage you to create margin in your life to participate in that. However, we cannot rely as followers of Christ on that alone as a practice for giving. That isn't the model of, that isn't the biblical model of giving. The biblical model is, of giving is calculated and consistent. So first, am I doing my part? Is our house doing our part? Secondly, are we being consistent? Or are we maybe being, being sporadic? Or maybe are we not participating at all? We should strive for consistency. Consistency is what scripture invites us to do. And third, New, new, or new Testament giving, New Covenant giving, pardon me, is proportionate. It says, Paul says, in keeping with your income. So they didn't have calculators back then, but they did have math, right? Who here likes math? 
Okay, just a few of you. Me too. And so he's inviting them to make a plan, right? And so many of them would have understood kind of the, many of them would have understood the, the, um, the tenth, right? The first and the best and the tenth, right? Given like this historical understanding of tithing. And so that probably continues to catch on for, for a while in many people's understanding. But you have to understand who he's speaking to. Many of them wouldn't have understood that he was talking about the first and the best and the tenth. He's not specific. And so it's kind of normal to, to walk away from, from what Paul's saying about proportionate and to think, do I have to give 10%? Or what is the proportion? And I think that that's important to look at. Now, if you're looking for loopholes, by the way, <laughs> if you're looking for loopholes in Christian giving, let me give you a few. I've seen this before. Maybe you've heard someone suggest that you spend your money first, right? You'd, you'd go and you'd buy the things that you need, you'd, your food, you'd fill up your car with gas, you'd, you know, do whatever it is that you need to do, go to Hawaii, right? And then <laughs> after you've finished spending, then you'd tithe on the remainder, right? That sounds like a pretty good loophole. That seems to make sense, right? Another loophole would be that um, it might be tempting to attach certain purchases uh, to be deducted from your giving, right? It cost you money to get here, right? I assume that most of you didn't sleep downstairs, right? And, and you, you, you came to church and you filled your car with gas, or maybe you walked, right? But you, your shoes still cost money. Should you deduct your shoes or maybe your gas money from your tithe? That would only make sense. Or perhaps you're on the worship team. Maybe you got like this brand new guitar. Well, that wasn't cheap, but it's to be used for the worship of God in the house of the Lord. That would only make sense to deduct that, can I just suggest this morning that if we're searching for loopholes in our giving, that we've missed the point? Remember how Paul initiates the passage here? He says, always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Let's not search for loopholes in how we give or how we can give the least, but let us have an attitude and a posture that is ready to give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord. And that's not just financially. Finances are just one aspect of your life, but let us posture our whole lives so that we can give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord before we determine any sort of dollar figure. So the Corinthians here are hearing Paul's charge and they're wondering to themselves, do we need to give by a percentage? He didn't say, he didn't specify. And so I kind of wanted to just pull out this like thought here. This isn't in the Bible, this is just Daniel. I don't think this is dangerous. I think that a percentage is a good idea. It makes sense to me, right? It makes sense that we could give proportionately and that we could use a percentage, but it's not necessarily a rule. And the reason that it, that it makes sense to me is, is because we all have different jobs and we've all got different families and different skill sets and, and all different incomes and different expenses, right? And so if someone was to suggest to you that, hey, there should be like, you know, this hard, fast rule, like, I don't know, this amount of dollars, or someone was like, hey, it should be proportionate. To me, proportionate just seems to make sense. And so I actually kind of like to lean towards the Old Testament rule of giving on the first and the best and the 10th, because I think that it's a good model. I can see how it served the, how it served the church well all over the world for many, many years. But it's not a rule. It's not specified in the New Testament, kind of our new covenant of giving, that 10% is a rule. If anything, what we see through scripture is a model that we'd want to give more and more 
and more. And so if perhaps maybe you're giving 6% or something like that, that is okay. That is all right. It's not, it's, not in the, it's not in the Bible that it would suggest that there's any consequence to that. It's not in the Bible that it would suggest that because of that, you're not going to be saved, right? And, and the same would be if you're giving 12, right, or 25, right? It, it does say, though, that it should be proportionate to your income. So let's keep that in mind. The fourth point here is new covenant giving is attached to vision. Paul says this, it's for the Lord's people. Would you say those four words with me? For the Lord's people. These four words matter so much because first of all, it is for the Lord, amen. It is unto God. And secondly, I think it's important that we have vision for God and then for his people. It's for the Lord's people. If, if you're newer to our church family, our message is simple around here. We're trying to bring the message of Jesus into everyday life. It, it's not super complicated. When we work with managing our church budget, when you give to Gateway Church's general fund, what are you investing in? Bringing the message of Jesus into people's everyday lives. Particularly, but not exclusively, people living in the beautiful city of Campbell River. New covenant giving is attached to vision for people. Now, on a practical level, if, if you were to grab like a, an envelope in front of you, you know, in the seat pockets or something, you were to fill that out, you were to put a tithe into the box of the back, or maybe you took your credit card out or your debit card and you made like a tithe at the back, or you came by the church office, or maybe you went on to do online giving. I know there's a lot of ways to give. Um, if you were to do that, if you were to make a tithe of sorts, as long as you didn't specify where it was going, if it was undesignated, it'll go into our church general fund. That's sort of the main destination for our giving. And the general fund keeps the lights on. It turns the heat on at the church. Recently, our roof was in need of some repairs. It covers staffing, salaries, but it does so much more than that too. The, the, see, the church that you're a part of has been a part of for many, many decades advancing the work of God within the city and around the world. This means that the general fund is supporting children's ministries like Sunday school happening right now or, or youth ministries, which takes place midweek where we have like a separate service or an additional service, I should say, for our teens with a, a, a kind of a specific message to their age group where they can worship, where they can connect with one another, right? We support things like that. Community outreach projects. For example, this year on December 1st, we're gonna be helping out with the big truck parade and, and we'll be making s'mores downtown in Spirit Square right? Uh, and and it's, it's, it's these opportunities that we get to kind of express the love of Jesus in our community that I think are so important. I think these are great investments in our church. And there's so many that I didn't even mention, by the way, that have been going on for decades and decades. I don't know about you, but I want to see more of that in our church. And I don't think I'm alone in that frame of thinking. So how can we support our church in its vision for people? Well, there's lots of ways, right? God's made you more than just dollars, right? You have hands and you have feet. You've got voices. You've got love in your life that you can offer to your community. But one crucial way is by giving to our church general fund. Additionally, you can, you can give to a more particular fund if you choose. I won't list all the initiatives of our church, by the way, but I'd like to take a moment to highlight our benevolence fund. Our Benevolence Fund cares for people in our church community who are in need, people that are experiencing struggle or ongoing struggle. 
Maybe someone loses their job. Perhaps they have a surprise move. Maybe they're just unable to buy the food that they need to eat in that month. We get to help because of your giving at Gateway Church. And I love this. It fills me with great joy that we get to meet needs in our community as they present themselves. So I wanna say thank you. Thank you to the many of you that are sitting here or maybe watching at home, you couldn't be here today. Thank you for supporting our vision and bringing the message of Jesus into everyday life, everyday lives of people. Thank you for your regular support. Thank you for giving unto the proportion of your income. Thank you for giving unto the vision of the Lord's people. You should know that you're a part of a very faithful congregation, faithful in prayer, faithful in mission, faithful in love, and faithful in our finances. You're a part of a church that gives from a heart of worship and that gives because we trust in God. So thank you. Here's a thought. Money empowers. Think about it. Money always empowers something. Every dollar that we spend empowers something somehow. And so the question that kind of comes up for me is what do I want to empower? Just for a quick review, new covenant giving, what are the four things? It's for everyone, it's consistent, it's proportionate, and it's attached to vision. I, I'd invite you to kind of look at this list here and ask the Lord to speak to you. God, if there's one of these things or maybe two of these things that I need to do a work on in my heart, if I need to kind of be sculpted by you, God, what would it be? Lord, what would it be? See, money is an important part of each of our lives, and it's also an important part of our faith. I want to conclude this morning with a final thought. It's a longer thought, if I'm honest. <laughs> if there's one thing I'd hope you'd hold on to from this morning, it'd actually be this. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. And in Luke chapter 15, we see Jesus in the midst of tax collectors and sinners and Pharisees. And we know this because in the very first verse of the chapter, it says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And it's here that Jesus takes the time to share three stories, three parables about lost things, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. I wanna read the last of these three parables, the one about the lost son. And what I'm gonna get you to do is here, I'm not gonna have it up on the screen here, um, uh, and, but if you want, you can read in your Bibles as I read. Um, but I, I invite you to close your eyes and to sort of kind of imagine what's taking place here in the parable of the lost son, to imagine that maybe you're one of the sinners present, to imagine that maybe you're one of the Pharisees that's present or the tax collectors. Would you close your eyes? Let me read. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. 
When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to, his, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and you've never, and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Church, you can open your eyes. See, halfway through the story, there's a point in time where the son, the lost son, realizes that he squandered his father's wealth and he's messed his life up. And it's here that we see a near hopeless young man reach out for that one last hope. He hopes that if his dad is merciful, he could return home. And when he returns home, his father joyfully greets him and throws a party for him. But then there's the, the faithful and loyal older brother who had followed the rules, he's angry and he thinks it's unfair. Who does this older brother represent in the parable? It's the Pharisees. Jesus is trying to say to the Pharisee, listen, you've missed the point about justice. You've missed the point about love. Look, here's this broken person. This is what it is all about. And at the end of the story of the lost son, or should I say lost sons, it's not just one son who's lost in this parable. At the end of the parable, we see the father inviting that older brother back into the home to feast with them. And then the story seems to end without resolution. Why does Jesus tell the story in such a way? It's because the Pharisees were missing the point. It's because Jesus was not just inviting those who knew that they were sinners to come home. He's also inviting those who didn't yet realize that they'd been so religiously motivated that they were missing the point. He's saying, come to my table, both of you. Come to my feast. I want to have relationship with both of you. And so my final thought to you is this. You can disregard everything in the message if you'd like, but pay attention to this. This is the kind of God that we serve. 
that he finds the most broken people in the world and he offers them salvation. And he even turns to the most proud and to the most arrogant and he says, come to my table, there's room for you. Friends, this is Jesus and I am so glad that we get to follow him together. Worship team, could you come forward? I think we love it when we see Jesus being merciful to those who we think seem so deserving of it, the broken and the needy. But in today's text, we see that Jesus took his time to share in the home of a Pharisee, right? It says that he, that he, he went in and he sat with them. He sat in the presence of tax collectors and sinners as well. And it's in this environment that he tells a story to give an invitation to those who might seem undeserving. His love for us is so big, it's beyond our ability to understand it. And so my challenge to you in this is to make yourself available to come to the table. You are invited. He loves you so much so. Let me pray for you. Church, would you just kind of stand with me, raise your hands? Dear Heavenly Father, we give all of ourselves to you. We devote ourselves fully to you. God, as we talk about difficult subjects and we look at different areas of our lives that are hard to give fully to you, God, I wanna just kind of identify those things in my life. And might I not be the only person that's identifying those things too? God, we give you everything. We love you tremendously. Help us to be faithful. Help us to be obedient. May you continually convict us and do a work in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Church, would you worship with me as we give praise to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? Thanks for joining us today. We trust that the Lord has something great in store for you. Do you have a question or a prayer request? Send an email to info at gatewayfoursquare.ca or find us on Facebook at GatewayCR. Don't forget we gather each Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. at 403 Fifth Avenue here in beautiful Campbell River. Have a great day.